What is it about antimicrobial resistance? What are the societal and ethical implications of synthetic biology? How does scientific research work in real life? Welcome to AM Podcast. Hey, and welcome to AM Podcast. My name is Antonia. I'm also part of the podcast team and will be hosting today's episode. I would love to introduce you to today's guest, junior professor Andreas Dreger. After graduating with a bioinformatics degree in, in Halle, he went on to do a PhD at the University of Tübingen, followed by a postdoc in kinetic modeling and dynamic analysis in systems biology at UC San Diego. Since 2018, he's back at the University of Tübingen with the junior professorship from the German Center for Infection Research in Computational Systems Biology of Infection and Antimicrobial Resistant Pathogens. I'm very excited to talk to him today about himself, his current work, and the future of drug development. After we discussed genome mining with Professor Nadine Ziemert in our last episode, I'm delighted to learn about a slightly different approach. Thank you, Andreas, for, for joining me here today. Hello. <laughs> So before we get into talking about computational systems biology, I'd like to take a step back and ask you how you got to where you are today and maybe what were like two or three crucial experiences looking back that made you choose bioinformatics and then led you to pursue a career as a scientist. Well, after doing my studies in Halle, I was uh, searching for a PhD position and Tübingen was always at the front of that uh, list because um, Tübingen was, um, to my knowledge, the first university that is established a real bioinformatics class um, early already in, at the end of the 1990s and um, therefore had the longest experience. I, th I think there was also in uh, Bielefeld, there was another early study in uh, bioinformatics related field, but not exactly that. So therefore, for me, it was uh, clear that I wanted to come to Tübingen uh, for doing my uh, PhD. And there was an opening about um, modeling metabolic networks. And that was uh, fascinating for me because exactly my studies ended with that topic in Halle. We had a modeling uh, practical course and um, Therefore, I, I thought this would be a good opportunity to continue what I've just learned. And so I came to Tübingen, um, did my PhD, and uh, I really stayed in that field. I was uh, quickly uh, connected to others um, working in similar areas. Um, so it turned out that at that time, the human liver was of a very specific interest. I saw that you did a long-term project there. Maybe could you talk a little bit about what you did there, how people can think about that project? Of course. So the German government wanted to have a flagship project in the field of systems biology, which was really very uh, fashionable at that time in the um, mid-2000s. And um, the human liver seemed to be most interesting because it's an organ that has um, very important functions in the body um, for detoxification and um, many others. There are also diseases related to it. So the hope was that one could build an entire organ model for the human liver that incorporates all these different processes that take place in the liver. And this uh, project 
was very large with many research groups all over Germany and uh, with a, um, a scientific advisory board from outside Germany to ensure that th there is a, a sufficient quality and international visibility happening. So that was really um, very great. Also gave me the opportunity to get in, in touch with many researchers who were already leading in systems biology early on. Yeah, and after my PhD, I went to California. Um, oh, wait, I should also say that I had the great opportunity during my PhD to already go to Yokohama uh, to work there for a quarter year in Japan which was a very exciting opportunity because also Japan was um, early um, in the development of systems biology techniques in, in particular with uh, bioinformatics because um, in, uh, in Japan there was a great uh, program that I think started with uh, Sony, the company, in collaboration with the uh, Japanese uh, government who developed very interesting software fascinating software and I was very eager to to go to that lab um, that made that software project and uh, work there also um, before finishing my PhD in Tübingen and going to California to conduct more research in uh, in a related field of systems biology where um, the um, angle shifted a bit more towards um, bioengineering and um, what what can be done by engineering molecular uh, systems and uh, cells and study how to um, tune metabolism towards production rates of certain substances and so forth. Okay, interesting. Maybe to kind of clear up the terminology, could you explain what we can understand under systems biology and also biological engineering, how that fits into that, and then maybe bioinformatics as well? Yeah, bioinformatics itself is already a science that operates at the intersection of uh, computer science, biology, and uh, some other uh, disciplines of science and uh, tries to solve uh, problems of uh, many um, tasks relating to uh, statistics, machine learning and so forth or interpreting sequence data or other large-scale data. Systems biology uses again bioinformatics for some of its tasks but also relates uh, to other disciplines such as bioengineering. In bioengineering you want to basically often produce something using organisms a very well-known discipline in bioengineering is certainly a brewery, so where you want to make a very nice yeast product that we all know very well. So there you see what the intersection again is. So you use computer technology and um, bioinformatics to uh, study how these systems work in in their entirety. So systems biology is really a kind of discipline where you want to gain an understanding of how organisms work in their entirety. Okay, very interesting. So maybe now could you explain a bit more about what you're doing right now? You're working on computational systems biology of infection and antimicrobial resistant pathogens. What problems are you trying to solve there? And what's the goal kind of behind your group maybe? 
So we have all painfully learned uh, over the course of the pandemic uh, since last year that uh, infectious diseases are really threatening us and uh, virus infections are dangerous. So no doubt about that. But um, there are many other threats also. These um, antibiotic resistant pathogens that are spreading around the world are um, also on the rise and um, it's only a matter of uh, time when the next pandemic will finally reach us and so we want to be prepared next time we want to be better prepared in particular because not so many new antibiotics have been discovered uh, lately actually the uh, pipeline for these discoveries is really lean so uh, we need something that we can use to fight infections and systems biology again can be uh, a way a tool to discover weaknesses of these pathogens so in the same way as you want to fine-tune one organism to produce more of a certain substance you can also identify what it really needs to survive and where you can hit it uh, at best and possibly with all these uh, different drugs that are already known maybe we could reuse something that is already there and we had no clue that it can be helpful against certain pathogens already so systems biology is here a meaningful tool for um, discovery of uh, potential targets where then subsequently others can find out um, what we can uh, use to hit these targets what was the biggest problem that your team solved in the last year, thinking back? So we were also active a bit in COVID research. I was hoping you would talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so viruses don't live, so they are not organisms. Therefore, they don't have their own metabolism. And as I already mentioned, we focus really on metabolic processes. So therefore, initially, it was not directly clear how we can uh, use metabolic simulations to study uh, what what viruses do but in fact they highly depend on the metabolism of their host so what they do is they bring some enzymes into the host that catalyze a few extra reactions that wouldn't take place normally but also they enforce that the whole host has to produce certain substances in larger amounts that it wouldn't normally do and again there must be some weakness we thought and that we can hit and so we found that certain enzymes that we as humans usually don't need that much are essential for um, SARS-CoV-2 and um, are therefore a promising target where we could work against the virus with some uh, particular drug by actually hitting our own cells in a way, but in a way that doesn't hurt us much, but the virus a lot. So to paraphrase, the virus, it needs parts of our cells or pathways in our cells. Yes. And then I guess you would need to find out to compare the pathways or to figure out um, what, what the virus needs in this case. Yeah, in fact, it's uh, like building a house. You know, when you want to build a house, you need to know how many stones you will need, how much uh, concrete you will need. And then you make a long list of materials and to build your house and you can calculate all this ahead of time. So someone who wants to build a house knows exactly 
ahead of time how much uh, is needed of what material. And it's the same way for a virus. It's composed of certain things. In this case, not uh, concrete, <laughs> but uh, other things like uh, amino acids or uh, fatty acids, um, certain nucleotides. And you know how many of which kind. So you can also make a list what that virus will need to assemble viral structures. And once you have that list, then you need to know how many copies of the virus you expect to be produced per cell. And you simply can multiply. A cell makes so many virus particles. In, in what range, what, what magnitude are we talking I about? I think it's uh, roughly, if I get right, it's about 400 or so per cell. So then you can multiply and, and calculate how many certain amino acids you need and so forth. And what can you do with this information then? Yeah, that material has to come from somewhere. It has to be provided by the host. So you can uh, find out where the virus takes that material out of the metabolism and what, uh, what um, reactions have to be more active than usual to produce that material. And once you have that, you have to only find out what we need to disturb to drive the growth of virus particles to zero while simultaneously not disturbing the maintenance of our own cells. So that raises two additional questions. So first of all, what is the maintenance of our cells? So of course you also need to know what our own cells need to maintain their uh, state. Um, so we again need to know what material has to be regularly replaced and then you have to find out what happens when I disturb reaction by reaction. So we're talking about like 2000 reactions or so and we can in the computer easily uh, switch off the activity of each reaction. Uh, something that the um, biochemists could hardly do uh, first of all because the cells are not accessible like that. Uh, so, But in the computer we can easily switch off reactions and see what will be a predicted effect. This sounds very, very simple and very easy. But so one thing I learned in my studies is that it's usually much more difficult. Maybe some of the challenges that you had in this project or why can't we, I don't know, run these simulations through every cell in our body, for example, and then have a, a new target for all the, the viruses and, and bacteria maybe that we are confronted with in our everyday lives. So running these simulations is not difficult. It's much more difficult to figure out what these cells are composed of because you need exact models for specific target cell types. And also you need to know exactly what that virus is made of. So early on there was not much information about the virus. That is now much better understood. Uh, but still for human cells, we don't have so many cell type specific models. Yeah, besides, of course, the liver, <laughs> but uh, that is not the primary target of that virus. So we had to focus on lung cells here. And uh, so we focused on the alveolar macrophage because there we had a very good model already accessible that was made for tuberculosis and also well tested. Interestingly, tuberculosis um, is similar to COVID-19 in that sense, because in this case, the bacteria a pathogen lives inside of the cell. So it's not a virus, it's a bacterium, but still lives inside of that very same cell. 
So therefore, there is some similarity from a perspective of the metabolism because it also takes material directly from the cell inside of the cell, right? So you could reuse that. How long does it take usually to make such a model? That is very laborious um, and takes a long time. So it depends on how fine-grained you want to make such a model. It can take, if you're lucky and it's a small um, organism, a bacterium that has a well-investigated um, biochemistry already, then maybe within half a year or so you can have a reasonable model. But for human cells and so forth, um, it can take much longer So, because you have to be very careful. You, as I pointed out, you have to really calculate the material and it has to be exact and as precise as possible. And also, not only the material itself, also you have to balance everything, even the electrons and uh, so forth. So that is uh, really a, a process that has to be done in a very careful manner. Okay. And so, but once you have this model, then your, your work encompasses making the model as well? Yes. And once you have the model, you can, because we were talking about the virus before, what were the next steps? Yeah, so for us, virus infections are not in the primary focus. Uh, we are mainly targeting nasal infections in general. Of, of course, there are viruses also, but um, our main focus is on bacterial infections, uh, for instance, with Staphylococcus aureus, but also people who suffer cystic fibrosis um, that is of course, uh, a lung disease so we are also focusing on people who already suffer from cystic fibrosis and then get infected on top of that with pathogens um, uh, to find ways to remedy their situation okay what i would also be interested in hearing is how your work kind of fits into the overall drug development process in this case so we have a concrete case with a covid 19 target where i think you targeted guanu the guanulate kinase for instance yeah so that was our top hit exactly so what we can do is we can produce lists again with a possible or potential targets and then of course the next step is always the question like which of these targets that we identify is really a meaningful one that can be used because not everything that theoretically would be a good target can also be accessed with a drug uh, you have to uh, have a drug that goes all the way through the body reaches its target its target cell and then goes into that cell and makes an effect inside of that cell so along that way there can already be an effect that the drug never gets to that point so whatever target we identify has to be checked from uh, several perspectives such as accessibility but also possible side effects of known drugs that could be used against that but the good thing is that we have already so many compounds that have been studied which are in at least preclinical phases so that possible side effects are already studied for those and if you can take at least a preclinical compound that is useful to hit some target that we predict then a drug can be developed relatively quickly and brought to the market we mainly make ranked ordered lists that people on, on that uh, drug discovery pipeline can use and work through that list and uh, check which one is most promising in reality. And then that process takes, I heard normally it takes, like for the drug process, it takes another couple of years until 
there's really a product on the market, right? Yes, it depends on several things. So if a preclinical substance is already known and available that can exactly hit a certain target that we predict, then it can be very quick. In the very best case, there is maybe even another drug that can be reused. So that is called a drug repurposing. In these cases, it would be extremely fast. But yeah, if someone would have to study structure properties of the system and uh, design new drug or something, then that will take a long time, of course. It also depends on the collaborators that are able to do these investigations. Could you give an update on uh, the target that you found for the SARS-CoV-2 virus or where you are in the process there? Yeah, so the University of Tübingen granted us uh, funding to continue our studies with that. So that is uh, great. So we have now additional capability to do more investigations with multiple cell types and different human cell types. So that could help us to verify if the same targets that we identified for that uh, human alveolar macrophage, if that uh, same target will also be a, a good one in other cell types. And so far it looks pretty good. But uh, what What is needed still is that these uh, predictions have to be verified and we are in close dialogue with people from other groups to get also laboratory tests run and that is uh, still in uh, a preparatory phase. Very cool. Yeah, I definitely wish you the best of luck with that project. Currently, what are you personally most involved in and what are you most excited about out of your, your current project? So, well, the uh, big dream that we have is uh, that we could study the entire in interactome in the human nose because that is our main interest to see what's happening inside of our noses. So we wanted to build really computer models for every nasal inhabitant that has already been discovered. And once we have these individual computer models for these individual bacteria, then we can plug them together and simulate the interactions. And once we have that, we would be able to possibly identify helpful bacteria that we can use instead of medication. Think about your probiotic yogurt that you might want to drink in the mornings. So there could be something similar maybe for the nose that we give these helpful friendly bacteria as a nasal spray that will uh, do the job for us and reduce the amount of those that are pathogenic. What role does the nose play? That's not the first organ that I would think of um, when targeting diseases or, or pathogens. Well, the nose is the interface to the outside world, right? It uh, discriminates the outside from the internal body. So everything that enters our body has to come in somewhere. And uh, the nose is usually open, unlike the mouth. So uh, there is a constant exchange with the environment. So that would be the natural first spot to look at when we think about pathogens. Okay. I would also be very interested in hearing about what's the promising new technology in the next five or ten years. What are you most excited about in terms of new developments somewhere? What should we look out for? Predictions are always difficult, in particular when they're about the future. So that's so why... It makes them interesting as well. <laughs> So I think many good things are on the horizon already. So in particular here in Tübingen, so we have already another cluster of excellence for machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence. Here we have this uh, Cyber Valley initiative of the state government. And I think we can all learn from each other. So far, we in our research use only human intelligence. Of course, computer technology, yes. But these models that we make 
are based on what we know and our understanding and not so much on artificial intelligence. So I guess one has the ability to combine techniques from different research areas better. So maybe one day these techniques can help us to make quicker uh, progress in building such models and simulate those. Very cool. Then I have one more kind of fun question. Imagine you had 10 times the budget you had now. What would you use it for and why maybe? I think I would mainly hire more PhD students because as said, so building these models is still uh, demanding, but also exciting. So uh, we have already demonstrated that a lot of good things can come out of that, in particular with the COVID disease. So some of our PhD candidates could really get a lot of interest also in the public by building these models. So it's a lot of work, but it's also exciting and one learns a lot. So when, when building a model of a bacterium, you're really becoming an expert for that organism and basically know what it does and gain an understanding. So it's that's why it's so exciting for a person to study such uh, things in detail but also we need people who do uh, software programming because specific software is needed to build models to look at these to display them graphically to map data onto these networks and maybe even produce animations what's happening in these cells yeah the cells are not static they are constantly changing so we need to have fancy animations that give us an imagination a glimpse of what's happening in these cells and so that of course needs a lot of people to take care of that so i think that is our main limiting resource so before we close off today's episode is there anything else you would like to add Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be your guest today. <laughs> no, thank you. So to our listeners, if you want to follow up on some of this research discussed, Andreas Dreger has a YouTube channel. It's called Systems Biology. We'll add the link to the description. And so, Andreas, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast. Uh, we wish you the best of luck and thank you. Thank you.